This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. Guys, this is an extremely important day. Now, you may not know this. Not only is it the arrival of our five-week fall uh, students, but it's also, I know, brace yourself, the 700th episode of Daily Thunder, which is usually going to be on Monday, right? And this is a Sunday morning, so this is a special edition where I'm combining the two. My Sunday sermon and my Daily Thunder are going to be the same because it's the 700th, okay? Isn't that about as cool as it gets? And so there's, there's a lot of things going on. This is also the first episode in my seven-week series that I'm inaugurating today, and uh, it's called... Daring to do as Stanley Dale. I just happen to like the title of it, too. So, uh, and you're like, who in the world is Stanley Dale? And ironically, there's a picture up on the screen. He's a good-looking guy, right? That isn't Stanley Dale, but he's going to be symbolic of Stanley Dale. (laughs) I don't have a picture of Stanley Dale. Uh, and which is sort of a mysterious thing. Uh, C.T. Studd talks about etceteras, those men and women that are willing to go into the far reaches of the world and give their life for Jesus unknown. And in a sense, that's somewhat like Stanley Dale. I don't have a picture of him, but I do have a picture. So that's Stanley Dale for us. You know who that actually is? I don't know if any of you can figure out who that is, but that's Ernest Shackleton. And so, so I think that's, that's pretty fitting. Uh, it's a young Ernest Shackleton who will play the role of Stanley Dale in our series. But look at the subtitle, because the unreached can't reach themselves. There is a reason why we need to dare to do as Stanley Dale. And that is because there is a lost and dying world out there that needs to know Jesus. This series has the potential to change your life. And I'm not trying to overstate something and overblow it, I mean that. This series, in a sense, I almost want to say it this way, needs to change our lives. The body of Christ here in America has a tendency to think about us. We are very self-absorbed, even as a church system. And the historic Christian church has always been outward in its focus, which is why missions is the byword of the historic church. This is what we're built for. When you want to raise up your children to do something for Jesus, you train them to be missionaries. That's like the highest rung of career that anyone could graduate unto. And we've lost that somewhere along the line. So we're going to bring it back. So part one, today's message is the legend maker. I like the title too. So for this entire series, I have a dedication, okay? And this is, I've never done a dedication, well, I've done dedications, but never for one of my series. This is a new thing. You know, I I did a World War II series for 93 episodes. I did the Alfred the Great series over the summer of 21 episodes. I didn't give a dedication. I should have. And now a new tradition, a dedication. Dedication. This forthcoming series is dedicated to the hundreds of men and women and their children that have given up everything to follow Jesus into the treacherous islands of Papua New Guinea in order to shine the light of the gospel. The highest honor is due to these bold pioneers, these audacious commandos for their bravery, ingenuity, and love. 
And the mission societies that had the vision back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s to train and prepare missionaries for this land when this trailblazing work was in its infancy, my applause is given. CNMA, Christian Missionary Alliance, RBMU, Regions Beyond Missionary Union, UFM, Unevangelized Field Mission, TEAM, the Evangelical Alliance Mission, APCM, the Asian Pacific Christian Mission, ABMS, the Australian Baptist Mission Society, and MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. May your example, like the wake of a large and powerful steamer, move this next generation forward with similar missionary fervor under the shorelines of gospel adventure. Eric Ludy, September 5th, 2021. Oh, doesn't that sound good? It just sounds like we're entering into something so epic. We are. So there's our picture of Stanley Dale. Okay, don't question. That's Stanley Dale to all of us uh, for the next seven weeks here. So listen to this missionary motto of Stanley Dale. Now, to be honest, I made it up. Okay, this is a made-up missionary motto of Stanley Dale. Stanley Dale is a real character, but... There are certain things that I'm going to make him symbolic of. And this is, in a sense, the summary. I'm giving a lot away. I'm giving away the summary of the entire seven-week series right here. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. That is what we want back in the church. So whatever it takes to get that inside of us, I say we lean forward, and before we even begin, we say, Lord, give that to us. I don't want Stanley Dale to be the only guy in history that lugs this around. I want this. I want to dare to do as Stanley Dale. The legend maker, Jesus Christ. So this is a term that is going to come from the Sawi tribe in Papua New Guinea. Uh, cannibals, headhunters, devil-controlled, very, very evil uh, tribe. And this is going to be the group that Don and Carol Richardson uh, are going to go and reach in 1962. And one of the terms that Don Richardson is going to gather out of his time with them is this idea of legend makers. That there, at the time he's arriving, there are two new legend makers that have just risen to the surface, and they're the epitome of Sawi manhood. Why? Because they have brought about the greatest treachery. They have fattened f- with friendship someone from another tribe and then brutally murdered him and then ate him. Okay, this is like as dark and as evil as all get out, right? And so at the time that Don is going to show up, he is going to be competing with these legends uh, that, have, that have done something so evil that the entire tribes, multiple tribes of Sawi are going to, in a sense, worship them because they're legend makers. And Don Richardson is going to bring news of a greater legend maker. His name is Jesus Christ. So 1962, the miasmal swamps of southwest New Guinea, the showdown of legend makers. So Don Richardson writes in Peace Child, Men, women, and children now look to Connie and Maheen as the epitome of Sawi manhood. Their place in the sun, however, was about to be challenged, and not only their place in the sun, but also the very idealization of treachery which they espoused was about to be engaged in something the Sawi had never heard of before, a contest of values. 
Connie and Maheen were not yet aware that some 2,000 years earlier, a supremely different kind of legend maker had launched a new worldview based on love. It was a worldview diametrically opposed to the Sawi mind, as it was also to the mind of millions who considered themselves much wiser than people like the Sawi. It has taken nearly 2,000 years for the message of that new value system to range from Galilee to the miasmal swamps of southwest New Guinea. On its way, that message had already challenged, engaged, and conquered barbarity in many forms in the minds of millions of people. For it was an extremely meddlesome message. It was not cowed by earthly obstacles, for its strength was supernatural. It could not be intimidated, for it was itself the ultimate antidote to fear. The message would not back away from any form of darkness, for it was light itself. It was not embarrassed if its bearers were sometimes plain, homely, or even untaught. In fact, it was fond of executing its most subtle strategies through such. To the consternation of its enemies, it could triumph when its adherents were being decimated by sword or spear. That message was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Its purpose was non-negotiable, to persuade men from every kindred and tongue and people and nation to repent and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That message was now about to invade the Sawi world, about to confront their idealization of treachery eye to eye in a relentless spiritual struggle for the souls of men, women, and children. It would match prayer and preaching against spear and barbed arrow, faith and hope against systematized barbarity, love and compassion against entrenched fear and evil. That invasion was about to be launched, that match to take place, that reconciliation to begin. For even now, the first of the legend maker's message bearers was about to come and dwell among the Sawi. Oh, guys, I am stirred already. Some of you aren't as stirred as you should be. Of course, I know where this is going. Maybe you don't. And of course, I've read this book. I know how good it is. So I am going to take one little zone of history and one little territory on the map of the world. It's going to be from the 30s all the way through 70s. And we're going to see how God reached an unreached people and the people that he used to do it and how he did it. And I tell you what, I am stirred to the depths of my being. And everything about what I'm going to introduce you to, to your natural man will be repulsive. And you would say, boy, I'm glad they went instead of me. And yet my desire is by the end of this that you would be asking God to be like the people in this story. And Lord, that your appetites and desires would be transformed to match God's and that you would be magnetically pulled towards the very purpose that you are actually here on earth for instead of the reason you think you're here on earth for. God must have the upper hand in your life. He must be the leader. He must be the commander in chief. He must be the one superintending your desires even. And so this is something that can only take place supernaturally. But a part of that is us yielding and saying, yes, Lord. And when we do that, God does his part. Going old school. So missions today is different than missions back then. And if you were to ask me, new school missions or old school missions, Eric, which way do you lean? I am like classic old school. Okay, new school missions, I understand their thinking. It's so smart and so cool 
and so hip. And we're going to build relationships. And we're going to do these various things. We want to uh, strengthen the indigenous. They have all these different terms for it. And what I would say is, you know, because I've heard, heard the whole breakdown of how it works. Give me old school. I want God's version of old time power. Back in the church of Jesus Christ, changing those that are haters of Christ into lovers of Christ. We're not playing any more games here. We have a lost and dying world that needs to know some good old time religion. They need Jesus Christ the way he's revealed in the Bible. So let's go old school. Here's Leonard Ravenhill talking about old school. You don't find the old-fashioned missionaries going like they used to go. Their sending church says, oh, we'd love you to come back for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Do come back. So they break off and come back and forth. They run to and fro. They have to go with their camera. They have to go with their load of stuff. Jackie Pullinger went on a single ticket to Hong Kong when she was 19. She is 44 now. She's still there. She has shed a million tears, but she has had some of the greatest characters, infamous characters, saved there. Remember Amy Carmichael? That woman didn't weigh over 100 pounds. She never married. She took a one-way ticket to the mission field. The old school notion. God has a mission field for every single one of us. But will we heed the call? Isn't that an interesting thought to think that God has a mission field for you? He does. The question is, are you going to say yes to it? Because some of us would prefer to define to God our mission field and then ask him to bless it. It's like, God, this is where I feel most comfortable. Could you bless that? That isn't actually how it works. You were bought with a price. You are no longer your own. You don't belong to yourself. You are his. And he's the one that does the sending. You don't send yourself and then ask for his blessing. He sends. So what does that mean? Well, this is the old school notion. God has a mission field for every single one of us, but will we heed the call? So where do we get such notions? Well, most of us are fairly well read where it comes to things like Matthew 28. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Very final words of the book of Matthew. And then Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So those are good classic underpinnings for us to recognize that God desires us to move into this world to reach those that are unreached. William Booth says it this way, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Hudson Taylor said it this way, it will not do to say that you have no special call to go to the mission field. With these facts before you and with the command of the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel to every creature, you need rather to ascertain whether you have a special call to stay home. A.B. Simpson says, God is preparing his heroes, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment, and the world will wonder where they came from. The awakening of the unreached. So, one of the key characters, as I will unfold during this, is a character named, or a guy named A.B. Simpson. So, A.B. Simpson is going to be sort of the head or the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And this guy comes uh, from 
the old school. There's no doubt about it. He was from the 1800s. Let me read this. This is from uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance website, giving a little background on uh, A.B. Simpson. In 1873, at age 30, Simpson left Canada to pastor the Chestnut Street Presbyterian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and later the 13th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. His desire to minister to the flood of immigrants pouring into New York City met with great opposition from the leadership of his church. He eventually resigned his prestigious pastorate and set out to establish the Gospel Tabernacle, a church in the heart of the city where all, the poor, homeless, sick, and displaced, would be welcome. Simpson's ministry to New York's immigrants caused him to wonder about the unreached masses throughout the world. It was then that he developed an insatiable burden for the worldwide evangelization of lost souls. Single-mindedly focused on this burden, Simpson began assembling like-minded people with a passion for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So you have this man back in the 1800s that is going to be stirred and awakened. How was he stirred and awakened? Well, he started reaching the poor on the streets of New York. And he recognized that there was odd, strange opposition from the church for him to do this. You ever notice that? it's, It's a weird concept. Why would there be any opposition and William Booth has the exact same story, by the way. When he starts re- reaching the east end of London, the church is like, hey, you have to, you know, we, we do our work over here in the west end. Well, the west end is where all the wealth is. The east end is where there's poverty. Uh, I mean, no one wants to go to the east end. William Booth did. And the same is true with A.B. Simpson. It's like, hey, what about them? And as he began to reach them, God was able to expand his heart, not just to the the poor and the lonely and the impoverished in New York City, but all over the world. And this was an awakening for A.B. Simpson, which is actually going to enter into our story. Because what's taking place here in 1873 at the age of 30 for A.B. Simpson is actually going to impact, like a domino falling, so many other lives. The preparation of heroes. So if you hang out at Ellerslie, you know every name on this screen, okay? William Booth, April 10th, 1829. These are birth dates, by the way. Just to give you sort of a placement of when these men lived, and women. Hudson Taylor, May 21st, 1832. Charles Spurgeon, June 19th, 1834. D.L. Moody, February 5th, 1837. And then you see A.B. Simpson in there, December 15th, 1843. It's the day I met Leslie. It's a good day. Uh, and so A.B. Simpson's sort of like, you know, we, we sort of nod at each other. He's in the great cloud of witness looking down. And I'm like, yeah, that's when I met Leslie. He's like, yeah, we have a bond. Uh, and then C.T. Studd, December 6, 1860, and Amy Carmichael, December 16, 1867. That's Leslie's birthday. So it's another bond. I like these characters. They're born in December. That's a good month. And so A.B. Simpson, I made it bold so you can see it. This man is going to create a domino effect, as all of these are, upon what is going to take place. The reason I'm mentioning these names is because these are the names that are going to create the tidal wave into the next generation. So A.B. Simpson is going to actually have an impact on the ones on the screen. So this is the preparation of heroes continued. R.A. Jaffrey, born December 16th, uh, 1873. That's Leslie's birthday. There's a lot going on on that day. Okay, so R.A. Jaffrey is going to be directly influenced by A.B. Simpson. And so R.A. Jaffrey is going to have a right-hand man whose name is Russell Dibler. If you've ever heard of Darlene Dibler, that's his wife. And so he was born in 1905. Stanley Dale and Don Richardson are going to flow out of 
R.A. Jaffrey's and Russell Dibler's movement into the interior of Papua New Guinea, which is then going to awaken RBMU uh, as far as a missionary organization to see the need and to actually begin to raise up missionaries as well, which are going to be Stanley Dale and Don Richardson, two of many. Okay, but two that we will definitely have a focus on. And then you're going to see, uh, as we sort of go through this uh, little slide, it leads to something in the 60s and the 70s. We're going to call that the gospel explosion. And so as a result, what you're going to recognize is the movement of God doesn't just happen in a day. It doesn't just happen in a week or a year. Sometimes it takes 100 years. In other words, God is doing something before we recognize that he's doing something. Just like in your life, you are here in this room right now, but there's a lot that took place to get you here. And the same is true with every movement of our life. God is very good at playing this game of chess. And he is going to win it, and he is going to get uh, the enemy's king in checkmate, no matter what he does. And the same is true with our life when we try and move around. And he's like, I gotcha. You see, he is after his ends, and he will get them. And so our job is to agree with him and get on his side of the board and play with him instead of play against him, because he's that good. Setting the stage. So this is a statement from Don Richardson that I think summarizes the entirety of what I want to share in these seven weeks. Future historians of Christianity will remember the advance of the gospel into central Irian Jaya, that's Papua New Guinea, as one of the greatest breakthroughs in the saga of our faith. In spite of awesome geographical barriers and the imponderability of Irian Jaya's complex languages and Stone Age cultures, a relative handful of missionaries have established some 1,400 churches in less than 25 years. These thriving tribal congregations average at least 200 members each. They are pastored entirely by tribal church leaders and are already sending their own cross-cultural missionaries to other tribes. In fact, they have sent out approximately one such missionary for every 80 church members. It would not surprise me if investigation revealed that to be an all-time historical record for missionary zeal. So I don't know if those numbers made any sense to you, but we're dealing with a people that is not just hostile to the gospel. They'll kill you if you come near them. These, these are some of the darkest, most demonically controlled people on earth. And if you're demonically controlled, you can just imagine how you would respond to the light of truth showing up in town or showing up along the riverbank. In other words, this isn't going to be easy. Yet in this range of time, as he's saying 25 years, you're going to see 1,400 churches filled with an average of at least 200 people. That's almost... I and mean, we're talking like 80 or 90% of all the tribal people in this country. That is like hard to even fathom what is going to happen here. You're going to go from the gro most grotesque evil to one of the most extraordinary revivals and changes of a territory and a people that has ever taken place in history. And not only that, but they're going to have more missionary zeal than all of us in here. And they're going to be sending out missionaries. This is the mission field turned into the mission sending organization. One missionary at least out of every 80 church members. And as Don Richardson says, it would not surprise me if investigation revealed that to be an all-time historical record for missionary zeal. So here's a map of Irian Jaya. 
also known as Papua New Guinea. Indonesia is what it's formerly a part of now, and formerly it was known as Netherlands New Guinea. So we have all sorts of names that you'll hear in this time. But you see Australia, and most of us know where Australia is on the map, and then you see that star that I'm putting there, right there is where most of the tribes are. There's going to be right near the tip of the, the top tip of the star, there's a mountain range that is going to go through that re reaches upwards of 15,000 feet, and it's snow-capped. So on this island, not far from the equator, you actually have snow uh, because of how high that mountain is, all the way down to like jungle territory, uh, rainforest-like territory. So that's just to give you an idea where we're at. So the preparation of intercessors and responders. Now in this, as you were listening, I want you to be the intercessor. I want you to be one that's saying, God, I'm ready to be sent. Put me where you need me. You see, God is always raising up his missionaries. That's the way we would refer to them. They're intercessors in one regard, which means a gap filler. So if there was a, a, a wall around a city and there was a hole in it, we would need an intercessor to fight off the enemies he's trying to come through there. So we would need one tough character to stand in that gap. And that's exactly what God raises up. He raises up tough characters to stand in the gap. Those that will hold off evil so those inside the city can actually gain awareness of truth and reality and awaken to Jesus Christ. So all throughout history, you're going to see this. And sometimes the responders respond differently than we would want, but we actually see God get glory out of it. Like, for instance, Joseph is prepared. So in every regard, Joseph is being prepared for the day in which he is going to deliver the goods to Egypt. And Pharaoh is also being prepared to actually see the need that he has for someone like Joseph. I guarantee you, Pharaoh doesn't just naturally come by that instinct to take a Hebrew and stick him in second in command. So what had to happen? Well, God had to prepare Pharaoh to be ready for that, which was great need. And there could have been all sorts of other things happening. We don't see the full storyline. We just know that Pharaoh had a dream. However, there is one man in all the kingdom that can interpret that dream, and his name is Joseph. So not only was Joseph being trained, Joseph being broken, Joseph learning faith and learning trust in God, but then Pharaoh was also being readied. So what you're going to see in every missionary venture is there's two sides of preparation. God is very good at what he does. And so right now, I would like to think that he's preparing you as missionaries. It does not mean you have to go to Papua New Guinea to be a missionary. So I'm not, you know, we could answer that now instead of you thinking, are you recruiting for Papua New Guinea? No, I'm recruiting for the kingdom of heaven, for active service to say, Lord, where do you want me? Wherever you want me, my answer is yes. And if that's down the road, praise God. You're going to have my full support. Wherever God leads you is where I want you to be. However, he's also preparing the audience that you are going to run into in the years to come. It could be 30 years from now, and he could be working on them now. Isn't that an amazing thought? To think that God is preparing the hearts of those that you will encounter, that don't know the gospel, maybe for 30 years, but then in 30 years when they encounter you, you have been built just for them because you were obedient to the Spirit's working in your life. So when you speak, it's exactly what they needed. When you live, they look at your life, your unique life, and they go, that's what I needed to see. Moses, and then of course on the other side we have another Pharaoh. 
And in this situation, we see Moses being prepared. I mean, how else would you describe 40 years on the backside of the wilderness but preparation? Moses could save the people in his own strength. He's like, I got this, God. And he kills that Egyptian, buries him in the sand, and then suddenly he's running for his life, right? And God says, no, you're not ready. 40 years later, God says, you're ready. And Moses says, I can't do it. And God says, exactly. This is, now you're, you're the perfect guy for the job. Once you think you can't do it, that's when you're usually ready, right? The moment you think you have it all and you're ready to do it, eh, God needs to work on you. 40 more years. So as a result, Moses is ready, but guess who else is ready? Pharaoh. But what's Pharaoh ready to do? Demonstrate the power of God through a hard heart. <laughs> in other words, Pharaoh is ready in a different regard to actually demonstrate to all the world the God of the Hebrews. Isn't that incredible? The spies, Rahab, we see the spies coming in, those two spies that are coming in are readied. There's a lot that has come into this. Rahab, at just this juncture of history, is at a full maturity of recognition that the gods of Jericho are not powerful compared to the gods of the Hebrews. And so as a result, she is ready to actually take them in. She doesn't just take them in. She marries a Hebrew man and becomes part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so as a result, once again, you see the preparation on one side. You see the responders on the other also being prepared. David and Saul. And so in, in these situations, you see David being prepared. You see Saul also being prepared to remember the, the battle uh, with Goliath. Have you ever had this thought like, why would Saul allow David to fight Goliath? Well, I don't know. I can't really answer that. I can speculate all day long on that because for all practical purposes, it's a really bad idea to take a kid that has never, hasn't even been invited to the battle. He's young. And if you lose, you become slaves of the Philistines. And so this is just a bad idea, but you could have the motive that Saul was thinking, hmm, this is my threat. This is the one that God's raising up. Well, this will do him in. So even though we have to be slaves to the Philistines, at least this will take care of David. I don't know. All we know is that Saul is going to be complicit with God's agenda, which is to have David fight him. And so Saul is being prepared. So is David. David is tending sheep. He's practicing lions and bears, and he is ready for the day. Daniel and then Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius. Daniel is prepared as a man. And even when he first arrives in Babylon, he's ready. And he's going to have a significant impact on Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has to be readied as well. And so through the dream that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have, also you have King Darius and the, the lion's den. If you remember that story, you're going to see these men being broken. These are men that don't fear God. And yet God is going to work on them in and through the life of this missionary named Daniel to, in a sense, win them. And Esther and Ahu, Ah Ahasuerus, King Ahasuerus. Why, why does that Ahasuerus? I think I spelled it wrong or something. Something just seems funny. I can't say it all of a sudden. Uh, so Esther is going to be prepared, and King Ahasuerus is also going to be prepared to do what? To see the merit and the virtue of Esther over Haman. And to actually realize Haman is the crook. Haman's the one that needs to be hung on the gallows instead of Mordecai. All of these things are preparations and then responders. Genesis 22, 13 through 14, we see one of the greatest pictures of this in history. 
Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So in this, you see Abraham being prepared. This has to be one of the hardest things any man has ever gone through. Could you imagine going on a three-day journey with your only son to take him up to a place that God would show him and sacrifice him? An unprecedented request from God. Are you going to be obedient, Abraham? Meanwhile, God has this ram who gets lost and starts wandering, whether it's a gleam in the bush, you know, some uh, shiny thing, you know, it's like, huh? And, uh, and starts following it. But this ram is going to get caught at the exact moment in history when Abraham raises, raises his knife. You see, God is working in all these things in your life. God is stirring in you even to be here right now. Why? Because he wants to do something in you to prepare you for a calling. It's a calling that we could say in one sense is general to all of us. It's not a specific calling just to us. It's to all of us. Go. I have every creature that is in need of hearing this good news. Your job to this general calling is to agree, is to lean in and say, Lord, here I am. I know you purchased me with your blood. You have given me everything. The least I could give you is everything in return. And that's when something beautiful begins. Because now God is building the strength of the message bearer, you. And over on this side, he's creating a readiness in the hearts of those that he desires to hear. You have to trust him doing his work on both sides to prepare you and to prepare your audience. So Flavius Josephus, uh, if you read his book called uh, Antiquities of the Jews, it's really fascinating. But this man is a historian, a Jewish man who lived in the time of Christ. And so he actually writes the histories of the Jews, and this is just one little clip of what he wrote. Uh, On the next day, Moses gathered together the weapons of the Egyptians, which were brought to the camp of the Hebrews by the current of the sea. And he conjectured that this also happened by divine providence, so that they might, that so they might not be destitute of weapons. So let me give you some context for this statement. Moses and the Israelites have just supernaturally crossed the Red Sea. Okay, pretty amazing. Now, when they left Egypt, they didn't have any weapons. They had women, children, they had some gold, uh, no doubt about that, and they had their livestock. However, they're going to run into a battle right on the other side with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are... uh, (coughs) desirous to destroy the Israelites. Now, if you're in a battle and you don't have weapons, you're in sort of a bad situation. Now, granted, this is God who is leading his people, and if he just parted a Red Sea, he can do it any way he wants, right? However, according to Flavius Josephus, the next morning after the the army of the Egyptians is destroyed in the ocean, on the beach, on the far side from Egypt, are all the weapons of the Egyptians. And so as a result, they picked those up and it says that he conjectured that this also happened by divine providence, that so they might not be destitute of weapons. You know what, this is what every great missionary has known. You don't have to have everything. You don't have to have your weapons in hand. You don't have to have a deep pocketbook to be able to pay all your bills in the upcoming future. Well, you know what you need? You need one thing. You need God. 
And if you have God and he orders you to do something in your life, he'll pay the bill. If you need weapons, he'll get you those weapons, even though your mind is going, but how can he get me weapons? I'm in a desert. Just watch. Watch how God will do it. Exodus 17, 13. This is the next battle, by the way. Listen to what it says. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Do you remember the battle where Moses keeps his arms up in the air and Aaron and Hur are holding his arms up? And as long as his arms are held up, they win. And if they drop, they start losing. That's this battle. This is right after they crossed the Red Sea. Remember, they didn't have any weapons with them. Or did they? So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Where did they get the sword from? Well, according to Josephus, those were the Egyptian swords that washed up on the beach. That's extraordinary. Matthew 6.32. This is one of those scriptures that you need to reference as a missionary often and always. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. Your job is to keep your gaze on him. You follow his instructions. You go where he asked you to go. He's going to take care of you. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Your job is to follow. And when you do, he will supernaturally back you up. So the preparations of intercessors and responders in Erie and Jaya. So just three examples that will come out in and through this, this teaching, this uh, series. Darlene Dibler, who is... I mean, in, in the Ludi family, she's one of our heroes. We love Darlene Dibler Rose. Uh, she wrote a book called Evidence Not Seen. And she is going to be put in a very specific concentration camp in World War II in Papua New Guinea. And the commander of that uh, camp is Commander Yamaji. And Darlene is prepared for this exact situation. No one in their right mind would ever want to be in a concentration camp, right? Who, who would ever want to be there? And yet she's prepared for this to share the light of Jesus with a man that may not otherwise ever hear it. He's in Papua New Guinea, okay? Why would, he's a Japanese guy. They don't, they don't, they're not even allowed to talk about the truth of Jesus in Japan. And somehow Commander Yamaji is going to come to Christ because in his camp is this lady named Darlene Dibler. Don Richardson, the Sawi. You see, Don Richardson is being prepared. Uh, around 1952, he comes to Christ. In 1962, after being trained, coming to Christ and being trained uh, at Prairie Bible Institute and then going through language training, cultural training, he is actually going to go over to Papua New Guinea and he's going to have to make a decision and he and Carol are going to choose the harder road, and they're going to take one of the most difficult people on the island, a people that has never had any exposure to anyone of a different skin color, anyone from a different culture. They have no clue, no, no grid whatsoever. They're completely unreached and untouched, and they're dangerous. And they're going to deliberately choose to go to them with their newborn child, Stephen. And yet the Richardsons are prepared for this, and the saw we, as if you read the book Peace Child, you recognize, whoa, they were prepared for generations and generations. They were prepared for this very encounter. Stanley Dale, there's our guy. Remember, daring to do is Stanley Dale. Stanley Dale is uniquely built by God to reach what many would argue was the hardest mission field in maybe even world history, 
which was the Yali. They were, if you think the Sawi are bad, multiply that by about 10 and you get the Yali. And guess who is uniquely suited for that job? His name is Stanley Dale. So the game Unreached, uh, training children to value what God values. So I invented a game quite a few years ago now, I don't know, three or four or five years ago for my kids that I never ended up making. I, I have it, I designed it, but I never made it. And I know it sounds terrible, but it was going to be one of those things like when they brush their teeth or when they clean their room, they get points. And then, they, then we play this game called Unreached. It was in Erie and Jaya, Papua New Guinea. It, it's a pretty cool game, right? But I wrote something in the introduction to it that is important for this, because I just want you to know my mentality. And I have my kids here, they're listening to this series, right? I want them to know this is for them, not just for you guys, this is for them. So this is what I said. I want my children to be built into men and women who can carry impossible weights, bear unbearable burdens, stare danger in the face and laugh, and go anywhere in the world and alter whatever culture they enter into with the power and love of Jesus Christ. Long and short, I'm building my children into missionaries, ones that live every moment as if it were their last and gleefully anticipate their final breath as it will in fact be their first breath of heavenly air in the dear presence of their king. That's the vision. The value of the unreached. Every single one of us theologically would agree that the unreached have value and that it's important that we are ready as the church to reach the unreached. And if you've ever heard someone in the church go, I just really feel called to the unreached, you stick your hand on their shoulder and you go, bless you. I am so glad you're here because now I can relax because I know you're called to the unreached. There's something about it that doesn't transfer through the body of Christ very easily. It's not a commonly held value that we're all like, that is so important. No, we're like, I'm glad you feel it's important. Praise God. And there's a part truth in that with anything. You ever heard someone who's just passionate about sharing the gospel on street corners? And they're very passionate about it. And they want everyone in the church to come with them. And most of the time, the church isn't that interested in going to a street corner in a busy city and standing there and preaching Jesus. And yet that person who is uniquely built and designed and has the fervor of God in them for that cannot figure out why everyone doesn't have it. And they have a good point. Because what they are desiring to do is right and good. Have you ever seen someone spurred on by the idea of orphans? And they just want everyone else to feel the burden for the orphan child. What are we doing about the orphan? Is it a good pang that they have, a good drive and desire that they have? Yes. However, it's not equal amongst everyone in a room. And the same is true with the unreached. You see, part of it has to do with the fact that we are uniquely wired by the Holy Spirit for unique mission fields. That's part of it. But then there's another part of it, which is not all of us are allowing the Spirit of God to stir up our affections the way He desires to. So we are insensitive to burden points that our God has. Our God is burdened for things right now, and we don't care about them. And that's on us, not on Him. Because we need to freshly lay ourselves before our God and say, God, burden me for what burdens you. It's sort of a scary prayer, by the way. Burden me for what burdens you. And if you're praying that prayer and you're setting your life before God and you feel burdened for something, 
I'm not going to try and make you feel guilty for not feeling certain things to a certain degree. I just want us all to be ready to feel what God feels. So I'm going to say it this way, the value of the unreached. It's a strange and mysterious truth that seems to be caught and not taught. You ever seen something like that? I could get in front of you and I could teach about the importance of the unreached. And, you know, it really might not do any good. And then one day, God does something in your life and you're like, oh, it is so important that we reach the unreached. And I'm like, I've been saying that for a long time. It's not necessarily something that's always taught. It's a spirit movement where he, give, he opens our spiritual eyes, not just our physical eyes, and we see it and we behold it. The events that shake us also shape us. Isn't that a cool statement? I'm going to read it again because it just deserves being repeated. The events that shake us also shape us. You see, if you've ever been shaken by something, maybe a death of a loved one or an extreme crisis that you went through of some kind, I, I can't name what it is, but you, you'd be able to have it immediately flash before your eyes. Those events that shake us also have the potential when the Spirit of God is governing us to shape us. And so the illustration for us is the miscarriage that led to a passionate drive to help the orphan. So that's Eric and Leslie Ludi right there. We have a miscarriage, and that is going to stir within us the value of the unborn in a, in a strange way. That pain actually is going to awaken us to a God burden, which is then going to awaken us to setting our life before God at a whole nother level to say, God, what have we been overlooking? Because I feel like there's a whole bunch of unborn lives that are not being considered. God, give us your heart for this. The next thing you know, we have a roaring flame inside of us and we're going to end up adopting Harper, then Kipling, then Reese, then Lily. God is going to do something in our life because of something that shook us. And this is just how God works. Oftentimes when we are walking through difficulty, God is setting us up to actually gain his heart in a greater level. Why is this series entitled Daring to Do as Stanley Dale? That's a good question. I think Leslie even had that question uh, because Leslie cares more about this series maybe than even I do, okay? And that's saying a lot because I'm very moved over this series. But Leslie has spent, oh, the last few months listening through, I don't know how many books. We have all these books stacked in our house on this because a lot of them aren't in audiobook and they're not digital. They're just old books. And for whatever reason, the people uh, in charge of turning them into Kindle haven't ever gotten motivated to do these books, right? So I have a whole bunch of books. You should see me. I'm carrying around this pile of books everywhere I go, uh, and I have to hold the books open. Remember old school style? Since this is old school missions, I guess I have to do old school book reading too. And then I have to stick something heavy on the book so I can type in quotes. So you're going to see probably a few more mistypes uh, in the quotations from this just because of that one fact. So we can blame it on that. Uh, but why is this series entitled Dare to Do with Stanley Dale? Because Stanley Dale is just one character. There's something about the Stanley Dale story when we get to it, which will take a bit, because he's going to be in the latter part of this. Don Richardson is actually going to write his biography. It's called Lords of the Earth. It is so stirring to me. It's one of the greatest biographies ever written, as far as I'm concerned. And it stirs you at such a deep level. And this man is very imperfect. Isn't that an interesting statement to throw out there? And yet God is going to use him in such a profound way, even through his imperfection, because he is willing. He is willing for the glory of Jesus to be spent, and he will be spent. 
And so I look at that as sort of symbolic. And that's what I want to encompass in this. In. If I call this series like Reaching Erie and Jaya, you know, maybe two people on earth would ever, you know, listen to it. It's like, that doesn't even sound that interesting. Reaching Erie and Jaya, what's that? But not that everyone's going to listen to Daring to Do is Stanley Dale. They go, who's Stanley Dale? But maybe they'll be intrigued enough to go, I need to know who Stanley Dale is. We'll, we'll find out. So the real Stanley Dale, and of course, then I have a picture that isn't the real Stanley Dale up there. This is the description, just to give you an idea of who this man is. He, he was described as rawhide, a rawhide tough missionary commando. Isn't that intriguing? Some of the guys in here are like, yeah, I need to know more about Stanley Dale. The symbol of Stanley Dale. Stanley Dale is symbolic of the Christian that has a grip on the immense value of the lost and the immense privilege it is to be the one to share Jesus with them. They see it as such a high privilege, in fact, that to suffer the loss of everything, even their life, in the process of carrying out that heavenly assignment is considered by them as totally worth it. The head versus the heart. You ever felt like that? There's a, there's a picture on the screen for anyone that's getting this via audio of our Stanley Dale character. And his head is aimed one direction and his heart is aimed the other. And you ever felt sort of like this where even as you hear a message like this, there's part of you that's like, that is so true. So true. Preach it, Eric. And there's another part of you that's like, dear Lord, save me from this message. Why did I have to show up? And why did he have to give this message today? If I didn't hear it, I wouldn't be responsible for it. But there's, there's this opposition in your life towards the very thing that I'm sharing. By the way, it's in me too. Everything in me, everything in me, I could say it that way, I should say most of what's in me is very supportive of this message. But there is an opposition at large that is desiring to push back and to excuse me. It is trying to get me out. It's looking for a loophole to say, but Lord, you know, I have six kids, but Lord, I have responsibilities here. Okay. We have all sorts of different things that will pop into our mind. The key isn't, is God going to send me, for instance, if I say yes to him, is he just going to send me to Papua New Guinea tomorrow? The key is, am I willing to set my future in his hands and to say, Lord, use it. Maximize my reason for being here. I want to be right where you have me, and I don't want to excuse myself from the tougher jobs. I'm going to go into the idea of the tougher jobs as we move forward, that we're just hoping someone around us is called to and not us. And I want to acquaint you with how a missionary processes through that. Because this is a very real thing for all of us in here. So the head versus the heart. The heart and the head. The heart says, this is what's going on inside of us. We must do something. And the head, that's agreeing, says, I 100% agree. You see, when you get these going together, something special begins to happen. They just don't always line up. The heart says, but it will cost us dearly. The head says that it will, but is not our beloved Christ worth it? The heart says, I am fearful. The head says, he himself goes with us and promises to never leave us nor forsake us. The heart says, I'm afraid of rejection. The head says, it's not you that they hate, but the one you represent. Embrace this fellowship in his suffering. There is tremendous consolation there. The heart says, God has shed abroad his, his exquisite love inside me for these people. The head says, then we must go. We must give that love. 
no matter what it costs us. The heart says, but I tremble at the specter of suffering in my future. The head says, our Lord has already seen what we will suffer and the difficulties we must face. And he has supplied us sufficient grace for every single one of those challenges that lie ahead. The heart says, then we must go. We must share Jesus with these people. The head says, yes, we must. For is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his suffering? So here's our missionary motto of Stanley Dale and sort of a summary of where we're headed in this series. Going enthusiastically. Why am I lingering on that one a little long? Going enthusiastically. See, if we were to go right now, it would going reticently. Going screamingly. I don't know if that's an adverb, but we'll, we'll add that in. In other words, we're going, but not happily. I'm just not ready yet, Lord. Could I go and, what was it, bury my father? Let the dead bury their own dead. What kind of response is that from the king of kings? Like, excuse me, but this is my father. I'm trying to show him respect. You see, we all have that backward look. It's instinctive inside of us. To say, but I have to give up so much. But you're going to gain so much. So listen to this. Going enthusiastically. Sharing courageously. Serving sacrificially. Suffering joyfully. Dying triumphantly. Father, Only you can work this miracle inside of us. This miracle of readiness. This miracle of spiritual enthusiasm. This miracle of spiritual courage. This miracle of spiritual self-sacrifice. This miracle of spiritual dying. Lord, I ask for you to do it in me. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that this message, this modeling, this biography that we are going through would not just land in our heads, but it would transform our hearts. And that, Lord, this heart and head combo would connect and that there would be a burning readiness and desire to be spilled out for the glory of Jesus. Do what you must do, Lord Jesus, to accomplish this. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.